Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Long Beach, California, from the Aquarium of the Pacific, an amazing location here, over five acres in Rainbow Harbor in Long Beach. Opened 21 years ago, but they have a new exhibit now called Pacific Visions, well worth the visit. Just opened up. If you really want an interactive experience in the fourth most visited aquarium in the United States, this is the place to be. We'll be talking a lot about that throughout the show. And what a perfect segue for our next guest, who's the president and CEO of the Aquarium of the Pacific, Jerry Schubel. How are you, Jerry? Fine, Peter. Thank you. And nice to see you again. I was here a couple of months ago with my camera crew doing a piece for our PBS show called The Travel Detective. And it was uh, so great to see your new exhibit under construction and to come back now to see it open called Pacific Visions. Yes, and it opened to the public on May 24th. So we've only been open a short time. And only a short time. Now, you've been here how long? Since 2002. So you're an East Coaster. I'm an East Coaster. You're a Long Island guy. I'm a Long, Long Island in Boston, but I grew up in Michigan. What's amazing about this particular aquarium is it only opened in 1998. 
right? That's correct. Uh, nonprofit organization. And now you become the fourth most visited aquarium in the United States. We were the fourth most visited before we added this new wing. So we're hoping to move up in the ratings. Well, you probably will. But it's not about the numbers. It's about the, it's about the content. It's about the content and changing people's views. So this whole new wing is devoted to changing people's attitudes on our relationship to the earth and the ocean. Well, you know, we talk about, you know, a focal point of most aquariums is what's under the water. You changed that with this exhibit. We changed it. We, and uh, when we decided that we had to expand in 2005, the traditional aquarium expansion was one of the options. But our board decided how much value would we add to the fourth most visited aquarium by adding some more tanks? We decided we would focus on... Because it's not just about tanks, is it? No, it's not about tanks. And, and uh, people come to aquariums to see live animals. But if you want to have those live animals well into the future, we have to change the relationship that people have with the ocean. And that's what this new wing is about. We'll get to that in a second, but any aquarium, if it's really going to be successful in the year 2019, can't just be an entertainment facility. It has to have entertainment with context. And, and conservation and research, and uh, most aquariums do. I think we're the only one, though, that has added an entire wing that will be devoted on a permanent basis to this relationship of humans and the earth and the ocean. Well, if you can't connect the dots, then you're operating in a vacuum. You can't help. That's right, and this is entirely designed to help people connect the dots. What statistical information gave you the drive to do that? There wasn't any statistical information in terms of aquariums, but it was very clear that um, we are on this trajectory to a future that none of us will like. So what we did in developing this wing was we brought, brought in some of the best scientists from around the country and around the world and asked them, what's the big story the public needs to know about climate change and what we're doing to the earth? And that's how this started. I mean, so many people operate from emotion, you would argue that you can't do that until you operate from science. You've got to have the science. No, I think the emotion is terribly important. But if we can fuse science and emotion so that we understand where we should make our priorities, that's the key to success. I suppose it's not the emotion driving the science. It should be the science driving the emotion. That's right. And, and that normally that doesn't happen. And why is that happening here? Well, we, we're not sure that it is, but... <laughs> but you're going to give that, it a shot. That, that's our goal, yes. And, and uh, you know, the, let me give you two quick quotes. Tolstoy once said, science doesn't tell us how to live. It has nothing to contribute on moral grounds. And he, he said, the public should decide the kind of world we want to live in, the kind of ocean we want. This was Leo Tolstoy. And then, much later, Richard Feynman, the late Nobel laureate in physics, added, though, a caution. He said... In making a technical decision, you don't improve the quality of the decision by asking a lot of uninformed people. So if you put those together, and, and too often in the environmental field, we confuse our goals with strategies to get there. So we're trying to fuse these two and take an ambitious view of the kind of world we want, the kind of ocean we want, but then rely upon what the science tells us we need to do. But we take so much for granted in the process, meaning uh, we don't really think every day. I mean, we're getting to that point, but most of us don't. We get into our car, we turn the ignition on, and how does that affect what's going on in the ocean? Or, you know, we get on a subway, or we get on a ship, or we get on a train. And I'm, I'm giving you the travel aspects here of this. You know, what were the connections there that people need to see before they put that ignition key on? 
Well, and one of our exhibits talks about uh, the CO2 emissions if, if you drive an SUV or a pickup or a traditional automobile or a hybrid or an electric car. And we also talk about the transportation of goods and um, ships in terms of safety and environmental impact are far and away the best mode of transport on a per ton per mile basis. But isn't it interesting that if gas prices come down, SUV sales go up. It's, it's not about the environment, it's about the cost of fuel. Yes, well, in California, the gas prices keep going up. And we, <laughs> every time we go to the pump, I'm not so sure that's a good idea. See, I've never understood one thing. If California is a port city where the tankers come in and the refineries are, why is fuel more expensive here than it would be in Kansas, where they got to truck it there? And the answer is because they can. Because they can, <laughs> yes. A lot of us wonder that. We don't have to be a state where everything costs more than it, it, than it does in every other state. And yet you're still living here, aren't you? And, yes, I am, because it's a wonderful place to live, and the, the climate, the, the weather, and it's a fabulous place. It ought to be the leader because we have more. Yeah, let's talk about California for a second, because, first of all, I think you're the fifth largest economy in the world. Yes. Right? Then you start breaking that down into agriculture, in farming in general, uh, in, na in, in natural foods, in fuel. In, I mean, every, and you, you have all these staggering numbers, and yet nobody seems to have connected the dots as to why California should be the leader in doing all the things you're, you're showing in these exhibits here about sustainable fishing and everything else. And we're trying to connect those dots. Everything from agriculture, we have the largest agricultural economy of any state in the country, twice number two, Iowa, three times number three, Texas. But if we don't change well before the end of this century, we will lose that. We do know how to change, and we can use less water. Right now, we use at least 70% of all the fresh water in California. California has the largest ocean economy in the United States. Top one is travel and tourism. If you look at sea level rise and what it will do to our beaches, the beaches will be scrunched and many of them will be gone. Shipping and transportation will remain strong, but the third one is offshore oil recovery, and within 10 to 15 years, that will be gone. So we, right, Okay, so these are the numbers that you're confronted with, right? Yes. How do you get that information to the people who control the purse strings and, and basically the legislative initiatives to at least try to mitigate that? Well, I think you do it two ways. You're trying to get the public behind this. Uh, but then we go to Sacramento and deal with the people there. They respond to what the public wants, though. And so you have to work at it from both ends. We were talking yesterday in Sacramento about uh, aquaculture and, and also the ocean economy. But if you don't get the public support, then the our elected officials are unlikely to act. You guys have made some changes, right? You're the, you're the first aquarium or the only aquarium that spent, what, $53 million just devoted to one animal on Earth. And who would that animal be? <laughs> you're, you're looking at him. <laughs> Man. Us. Yeah. That's right. Because without that, we're, we're, we're the real predators here. We're the top predator, yes. The world would be much better off if, if there were no humans on it. You want to stand on that? But the reality is, of course, we just have to adjust or we won't be around. That's right. But we have the knowledge, the technology, and we're creative, innovative, uh, genius type species. We have the tools to create a glorious future if we begin to act, but we have to act soon. And that's why it's so important to get kids in here early on so they, they can connect the dots. The kids can lead the parents. The kids can lead the parents, right. The decisions that have to be made can't wait until they get to be uh, adults, but they can lead the parents. And when you think about the exhibits that you have here, and we're going to talk about this when we come back, you know, you, you have interactive exhibits that allow people to feel, to touch, to smell, to, uh, to hear. 
uh, things that they normally wouldn't have a chance to do. That's, it's designed to be a very interactive new wing. As I said in the earlier introduction, you're a Long Island guy. You were at Stony Brook. What's different about the Pacific and on the West Coast for you? I think the one thing that's different is that our mechanisms in California to insert science, technology, and policy alternatives into the policy-making process, which is a government process, it, it, it's not as well developed here as it was on the East Coast um, in either Maryland, where I lived for many years, or in Massachusetts, or in Michigan in the Midwest. We've got the knowledge, the science, the technology, but we don't have the mechanisms to insert that into the policy-making process early enough. You know, the connection that I draw, you, I'm gonna, I, I know you're going to laugh when you see this, when you hear this, is here we are in Long Beach. I can see the water from when I walk out the door here. I mean, I see the Pacific, right? I see the fishing boats, some of the commercial boats here. And I look to my left, and there's a Bubba Gump shrimp place. <laughs> Come on, please. Talk about a disconnect for me. Um, and believe me, I'm a not, when I walk out of the, of, of the aquarium here, the last place I'm going to go is Bubba Gump to eat shrimp. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen, okay? But you're surrounded by... The, the, the products of industry here, of the fishing industry. You're, su you're surrounded by the products of the Pacific Ocean here. And that's a different kind of connection, right? Yes. Uh, industries will follow the, follow the money, the opportunities. And I think right now, in terms of doing innovative things in the ocean, it's strangled by the permitting and the governmental regulatory process. So if I'm a business, I'm not going to invest in something if I can't get a permit, if I can't see it on the horizon. Okay, so that's you. You got to make it tough. It, yeah. Well, you you have to see. You can have high standards, but you can have processes that will get to either yes or no, rather than just getting to maybe. So that if you're a company, that you can think about investing in in a project in the ocean, whether it's offshore aquaculture, wind farm, whatever it is, but you're not going to do that if the data don't provide you some incentive that you have some chance of getting an answer. Well, the exhibit that you and I just looked at, your brand new Pacific Visions, it's all about data. And it's all about saying, whoa, the population of the planet has been relatively stable for all these years, and all of a sudden it's like soaring. Right. Right? You can't feed those people. If we can't feed them. We can't provide them with the housing, the water, the energy that they need unless we change our directions. And, and we, we know how to do that. The science is there. Yes, absolutely. Although the application needs to be adjusted. For example, you know, in places, especially in the, in the Middle East, where you have a, a real water issue, you have major desalination plants. But the problem is in the process of desalinating the water, they're destroying the coral reefs. They're depositing so much salt back in the ocean. Well, okay. Desalination is not my, my first option. But in certain parts of the world, it, do, it does work. Well, now, look, before we get to that, what's your first option then? Conservation, stretching the supply and, and uh, augmenting it, also readjusting. 70% of the water in the world goes to agriculture, and it's at least that much in California. Agriculture can be done with much less water. And if you save some of that, you can reallocate it to urban areas, and, and uh, that, that's my first option. But we so you've got to go from just you know, saturation bombing with water to drip irrigation. Well, that's one, one thing. You have to price it appropriately because if it's un underpriced, people will waste water. And so there are whole kinds of series of mechanisms that we can use. Okay, so that's just water. That's just water. 
Yes. Now, want to go to if you look at Ocean Desal, we have one large plant in California in Carlsbad, and, and it's been in operation several several years. It's energy intensive, and that's one of the knocks against it. But so is pumping water from the Delta in San Francisco Bay to Southern California. So you have to look at all of the aspects. We have small desalination plants on places like Catalina Island and in some coastal communities. It's not the first option, but it ought to be on the table when you consider what we're going to do. I remember the, the famous John Huston movie, Chinatown. It was all about the water. Right. Yeah. And every state starting to steal water from other states. And, right? Yes, and countries from other countries. It's, it's the will the next wars be water, we, we fought over water? Many people think that it will be. And, and it's, it's the one natural resource for which there is no substitute, and it's essential for all life. There are substitutes for oil and, and so on, not for water. Well, we're very good at extrapolating all this data and doing projections. Let's not get to a doomsday scenario, but when do we run out of water? Well, it all, it all depends where you are in the world. But in, tell me it, where I need to be. <laughs> tell, yeah, you know, you know, in, uh, for a while, uh, Australia almost ran out of water a few years ago. Uh, South Africa almost ran out of water. Atlanta has been identified as the first city in the United States that may run out of water. So it, it, this is a worldwide problem, and this is why I think California, though, should set the example, because we have all the problems and we have the capacity to figure out what the right solutions are. And that model then could be exported to other states and other nations. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. not just about getting in the water or getting under the water. It's realizing that Long Beach is still a hidden gem in California. Um, my mom is a Los Angeles native, and when she was growing up in Los Angeles, she would tell me stories back in the 30s about Long Beach. It was a hidden gem then. It's, uh, it's really coming into its own now. And what's great about it is the diversity of opportunity, I should say, in terms of just topographic and, and, and just, just the geography of it all. And my next guest knows a little bit about that because she basically is running the El Dorado Nature Center and from Long Beach Parks and Recreation, Megan O'Neill. How are you? I'm doing well. You Long Islander, you? I know, I you know. know. You know I'm, uh, I'm East Coast, West Coast. I know, but you know, <laughs> Jerry Schubel, is a, uh, who's running the, the aquarium, he's a Long Islander. Oh, really? Absolutely. came from Stony Brook. Oh, okay. Not All far right. from you. Not far from Amityville. Me. Yeah, Amityville. But you've been here a while. I have. I have. I am now officially a California resident. Long Beach is always a surprise to me because... It's sort of a forgotten stepsister of, of L.A., and yet when you come down here, people are like, I had no idea. I had no idea. Nobody knew, right? One of the things is, is the Nature Center. Oh, absolutely. Um, we, uh, our staff, we have a joke. Every day we meet someone who's like, I've lived in Long Beach my entire life. And these are I've just the locals. That these are just the locals. I have never, never knew this place existed. I mean, we always, if we had a dollar for every, we'd, I'd retire. Well, look, you started at the center 15 years ago. Yes. So t it was a surprise to you then, too. And I, only, I grew up probably about 10 miles away in Orange County and another, and I didn't even know it was there either. So we're talking about 500 acres right smack in the middle of Long Beach. Oh, yeah. It's, it's amazing to see the, the size of it, and you don't realize that it is in, in completely 
urban surrounding. I mean, we've got freeways on both sides, uh, cement, but yet you've got this huge, it's almost like a central park. Uh, and just right in the middle of Long Beach is great. And what? It's 50 years old. Yes. We were having our 50th anniversary this year. 1969 is when our gates opened. Wow. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to have a little blast of the past, summer solstice celebration. A little on. Woodstock West? Yes, yes. We're asking everybody to bring out their, their tie-dyed. and their, No. Yes. Yeah, and you know what's really play. scary? They uh, still have them. I know. Well, the younger <laughs> generation has it now, too. Yeah, but they don't know. They don't know what we do. They <laughs> no. don't know. They don't know. But what's the biggest surprise? First of all, when people find out it's there, but then mm -hmm. what's the biggest surprise once they get there? The diversity of the habitat there. I mean, currently we have our own branch of the Audubon Society, which is also celebrating its 50th anniversary. But we have a, over 175 different bird species that frequent this area. We've got urban wildlife from coyotes, raccoons, skunks, um, to just the plant life that's there. And I think that that's what really surprises people when they come into this urban nature center is that they can really feel like they're in the woods or up in the mountains and not realize that they just got off the 605 freeway. Well, speaking of sense of place, I mean, you sort of straddle both L.A. and, and, mm -hmm. and Orange County. Yeah, we do. So we do. Our, our visitorship is not only from Long Beach, but we get all of the uh, you know, residents from Orange County, so Cerritos, Cypress, Los Alamitos, Garden Grove. I mean, we have visitors that come all the way down from Hollywood in L.A. And you can bike it? You can bike it. Um, we're right off the San Gabriel River bike trail, um, so you can definitely uh, take the bike trail and, and visit. Longer bike, but... And here's the other thing that surprised me, and you would know this because you're, you're coming from Long Beach Parks and Recreation. Mm -hmm. How many parks in Long Beach? We have 170 parks currently right now. So we are That's one of the... Staggering. Yes, we are one of the largest park systems. In fact, um, in previous years, we've won the best park system in the nation. So it is an amazing park system when you look at how many we have. And currently, right now, 80% of our residents in Long Beach are within a 10-minute walk to a park or an open space. And do they know it? <laughs> they are definitely going to be finding out, and that's something that our, our, our department and our city are, are really pushing to make sure that people understand how close they are to getting out in open space. And speaking of, of parks... You have something that's near and dear to me. You have one of the only beach dog parks. We do. Rosie's Dog Beach. Yes, definitely. It's, it's a, just a great, if you've ever been down there, it is so fun to just watch. Even if you don't have a dog, just going and sitting down, getting a cup of coffee, and watching all of these dogs interact in the water is amazing. And they're in the water. Oh, yeah. In the water, in the sand, running around with each are other. Are they surfing? <laughs> I'm sure they are, <laughs> somewhat. I, I've seen it. Oh, yeah. I have, too. Yeah. When people come here, the, the biggest problem with any beach area is that people usually never leave the resorts. They never leave, they never get off the, the main drag, they never get off of Ocean Drive, whatever. Mm -hmm. they, they don't really see what's there. Oh, yeah. Are you working with any hotels to let people know they have this as an option? Oh, I definitely think, I mean, I know our Visitors Bureau and stuff, and as, as well as our city, are, are advertising. And, and even nowadays, just going on and searching the different, uh, you know, Yelp sites and, uh, you know, travel sites, you can see all of these lists of, of things that there are to do in Long Beach. And in fact, I know the Nature Center is one of the top uh, travel destinations on a lot of those websites. I mean, when you think about any other city in the United States that can make the claim that no matter where you are in the city, you're only a 10-minute walk to a green space. Mm -hmm. That ain't bad. That's pretty cool. And then if you have a dog, you yeah. get to bring your bathing suit. Yep, absolutely. Well, all of the dogs are welcome in our green space, too. And it's all free. Yep, absolutely. What's the one thing that still surprises you? about the parks here? I, I think what still surprises me is that there is so many people who haven't found them. So many people, especially in, in teaching in nature centers and wanting to get kids out to experience that, is that there's still so many kids that are plugged in and we need to get them on the If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check 
the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. This is an amazing facility. Uh, it's been, you know, a nonprofit since it since it opened back uh, like 21 years ago, actually 1998. Hard to believe. Uh, five acres and uh, right here on Rainbow Harbor in Long Beach. And they've opened up a new exhibit called Pacific Visions, which is really quite remarkable because of its interactivity and opportunities for you to get up close and personal and actually learn something that you actually might even remember about your role and your impact in the world, not just to mention the ocean's impact on you. Uh, but it's not just about the aquarium. It's about everything around Long Beach, which is really having a renaissance. And joining me now, the executive director at the Long Beach Museum of Art, Ron Nelson, how are you, sir? I'm doing good. How are you, Peter? Good. Now, you've been around, what, 13 years at the museum? 13 years. In director's years, that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, there'll be a car to take you home right after that. Uh, I always think, and this is not particularly just to Long Beach, it's to any city, uh, unless it's maybe Paris and the Louvre or Madrid and the Prado, or you know where I'm going. Not everybody comes to Long Beach to go to your museum. In fact, most people don't even know you have one. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, I hear all the time people from L.A. going, wow, it's so close, it's so beautiful, I love this, but I've never been here. The museum is how old? The museum itself is uh, going to be 70 years old, and that will be next year, 2020. Okay, and, and that's young for most museums. Yeah, it is, it is. However, I mean, we are 10 years older than LACMA. We're 10 years older. That's the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Thank you. And uh, a number of museums in Southern California and in New York. And people are visiting. You had about 100,000 people? 100,000 people uh, we had uh, through last year. And uh, we did over 13,000 uh, of those are education within the Long Beach Unified School District. Now, you're, you're basically a, uh, it's a county museum? No, it's a city museum. It's a city museum, yeah. but it's a municipal yeah. museum, yes. Absolutely. Nonprofit. Correct. And as a curator, too, I mean, what are you looking for? Because how do you define yourself as a museum? I can tell you that the Grand Egyptian Museum, I can tell you exactly what's in there. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you, I can't tell you what's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art because they have so many wings, right? I mean, it's, yep. it's, 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 it's staggering. Yep. What are you going to tell me that's in this museum? Being 70 years old and the museum's history, it's how it's collected and what it's collected, is becoming more important all the time. And it's always collected contemporary art for that time. So 70 years ago, uh, there's a whole uh, new group of artists that are historically coming on the scene. And there's a lot of research being done. And I'm really proud of how this museum is collected over the years and uh, what's in that collection. What's in that collection? Uh, what we have... Uh, uh, had a wonderful uh, collection of Vasily uh, Kandinsky, as well as Yuleski. And okay, explain those, who those artists are. Uh, both of those artists are uh, modernists. They were in uh, Europe in the uh, 20s and 30s, and they painted um, really brightly colored what could be abstracts as well as um, recognizable images, but with a really an uh, eye on... Um, the art period of that time going forward. But they were sort of ahead of their time. They were. They were. They were. And, you know, it's uh, artists are out there pushing out boundaries. And the artists that are working by themselves within their studios, they have a lot of time to think. They have a lot of time to do research. And what they uh, bring forward is, uh, I think, truly amazing. Would you have any of the artists that you would call truly revolutionary? Yeah, I would. And that 
is exciting. It uh, is happening more and more here within the city. Uh, new mediums to work with. Such uh, as? Um, well, video has been around for a very long period of time, but video now becoming more experimental, as they have here at the, even at the new aquarium here. So the museum has a, a vast uh, archive of uh, video art from the 70s forward. But the new things that are being done with it are so interactive and they uh, just boggles the imagination. Well, explain the work that you're doing with Willow Sculptures. <laughs> this one is amazing. Yeah, it, this is uh, Patrick Doherty. And Patrick uses Willow and he does very large sculptures. And Explain he, what a large sculpture is. I mean, let's put it in perspective. Okay, they're 18 feet tall. And that would be a large sculpture. Yeah, and there are five of them. And they are uh, Willow vases that you can walk inside and when you're inside there's this wonderful cocoon feeling about it and people really respond to them and you know you see them and it's amazingly impressive to see and watching them come together a lot of work but really wonderful work it'll be there for a few years would you call yourself an interactive museum uh for I think for students, uh, we also on Saturdays have docents there to do the, to work with them. We're a very tactile museum. Uh, we are located right on the Pacific, uh, a bluff overlooking the water, and people come there. So you're a museum with a view. We are a museum with a view, yeah, and a great restaurant. So, yeah. Oh, you're pushing the restaurant. Well. Claire's, you can't believe you can't beat it, and it's the only place that you can really sit on the Pacific and look out. And of course, Claire comes from a, because Claire has a significance, the name. Claire does. Uh, Claire Falkenstein, the painter and, and sculptor. And uh, we have one of the uh, remaining seven uh, worldwide large um, sculptures that uh, to this day is, uh, and, and a fountain. And the basis and the name for Claire's. Other than the Willow sculpture, somebody coming to the museum for the first time, what's the thing that's going to surprise them the most? That's going to surprise them the most is the view and the property. And once you sort of get over that awe factor of that, then they're going to really be um, interested in, in, and engaged in their, uh, the exhibitions that we're creating. How often are you recycling? I shouldn't say recycling, reshuttling the exhibits? Uh, exhibits are usually up for three months, some for four. And we have the ability to do uh, two or three at any one time on different floors. And is storage a big problem for you now? Storage is always a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> and storage, you know, there's a... We, we now are going to be opening in July a new downtown location, and we're under um, construction now with that, but it's going to be a really exciting space. And again, let us you know, service the city as a world-class destination, but also for artists to have a place to show. And did you sneak in there and put your initials there so that nobody will see? Um, you did. You did. <laughs> Do I look guilty? Yeah, very guilty. <laughs> you made your mark already, didn't you? I made my mark. I knew it. I have a legacy. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest has a title I've always wanted to know what it means. 
even when I went to the University of Wisconsin, we had a big agriculture campus there. We were a big ag school, of course, America's Dairyland. And now I get to ask her, Sandy Troutwine, who is actually the Pacific's, I mean, the Aquarium of the Pacific's Vice President of Animal Husbandry. That's correct. Please explain. Well, okay. So animal husbandry, first of all, means the care and welfare and breeding of animals. And here at the Aquarium of the Pacific, my job is to oversee the, the uh, excellent care and welfare of the 10,000 animals we have here in our animal collection. Now... It's one thing we call it a collection. They're living and breathing. It's not just a collection. That's right. It's a living uh, collection of animals. And uh, the animals that we represent here focus mainly represent the uh, animals from the Pacific Ocean. Now, when we talk about the Pacific Ocean, that's no small body of water. So we're talking about everything from the Antarctic, if you really want to go that far, uh, all the way up to... Uh, the North Pole. That's right. The Aquarium of the Pacific offers multiple animals and exhibits and naturalistic displays that focus on animals from cold water, temperate, and tropical Pacific regions. And the challenges that every aquarium has, especially in the year 2019, is how do you maintain an environment for them that doesn't destroy them in the process and at the same time allows people to have an interactive relationship with them so we can learn. That's exactly right. And so we ensure that all of our animals are uh, from sustainable resources. For example, we do a lot with the rescue of animals. All of our sea otters have been rescued and uh, deemed non-releasable. So uh, I've actually played with a few of them. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, be careful there. <laughs> oh, I know. I learned my lesson with koala bears, please. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, not, they're not cute and cuddly. Yeah. They look uh, cute. Yeah. But they're not cuddly. Yeah. And I think over the years, you know, I've been in the, the uh, aquarium industry for the past 35 years, and I've really watched how aquariums have gone from being organizations that focused uh, on education and entertainment, which are still strong themes today, to places that contribute to conservation and research. And that's what uh, one of the top priorities of the Aquarium of the Pacific. I remember my first visit to an aquarium when I was in elementary school, and the, the approach to that for us and for just just about everybody else was look but don't touch. Uh, you know, you can watch from a distance. You couldn't really connect the dots. Uh, and then that was transformed for me with the Monterey Aquarium when they really, I think, you know, pushed the envelope and allowed people to have an, 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 an up-close and personal experience. That's right. And here at the Aquarium of the Pacific, we have multiple opportunities for guests to get up close and personal through our touch experiences, for example. We offer the opportunity for guests to touch sharks and moon jellies or to feed lorikeets or touch a sea star. Oh, let's do this one at a time. Okay. Let's go to the fabulous touch a shark experience. Yes. What kind of a shark? Well, Nurse we, sharks? Uh, well, we have a variety of sharks, including bamboo sharks mainly, which are smaller sharks as well as some cow nose rays and blue spotted rays. And let's, uh, well, let's start with the sharks again. Okay. How many different sharks are there just in the Pacific? Oh, that's a tough question. Several hundred, a couple hundred, but um, I'm, I'm not sure. You've got me on that one. But, you know, we go back to the movie Jaws, which, which gave everybody their own definition of what danger was uh, and fear. Right. But in the reality of the, of the world in which you live in, 
not all sharks are going to kill you. No, that's exactly right. And that's why we offer a touch experience in our Shark Lagoon touch pools, because we want to demystify sharks and um, really show sharks in the light that they should be shown in that they are a top predator in the sea and they play a very important in keeping our marine ecosystems healthy. And they're not something to be feared, but they're something to actually be respected. And actually, their numbers are declining at a very rapid rate. So I we saw need that. To protect them. I saw that. Speaking of the Pacific, out in Asia, because, um, and especially in, in in Hong Kong and China, where the restaurants for years would sh- would serve shark fin soup, and they finally got educated as to like this is not a good idea. You're killing all the sharks, and and now the responsible hotels have made a a determined effort to take that off the menu. That's terrific, and that's what we're hoping for, is that by highlighting and educating our guests about the importance of sharks and telling the conservation story that 100 million sharks each year are removed from the sea because of destructive practices like shark finning and uh, bycatch, for example, then their numbers are really declining. Yeah, I want to talk to you when we come back about bycatch because... What people don't realize is when you have these big netting operations that the, that the fishermen are using, you're catching things that should never be caught. That's exactly right. And they're dying in the process. Mm-hmm. And that's everything from dolphins to... Turtles, yep. There are a lot of... Uh, there's Bycatch is a huge problem, um, but it's getting better, and they're coming up with things like turtle exclusion devices that uh, help protect some of these other species. When we think about population growth, which is almost exponential at this point, Um, How do we feed everybody? Good question. But I encourage folks to come and visit the Aquarium of the Pacific to learn more about those possible solutions through our new Pacific Visions expansion. It's here where... I've I've gone through it. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you. It's a a very unique experience where guests can learn more about the challenges that we face in the future and the decisions that we make now that can make a better future for us. One of my continuing problems with news reporting, uh, if I should be so bold, is, is that we spend too much time chasing fire trucks and not enough time explaining the fire. And what I like about your exhibit here is it actually explains the fire, if you will. Yeah, it's it's great. It's a combination of theater film, of art gallery, of interactive exhibits, and of live animal exhibits that can help uh, give our guests different clues into our future and, and the decisions that we can make today to, to make it, in, it better. How many staff do you employ? How many different care centers do you have to take care of 10,000 living things? Well, we have about 50 paid animal care professionals, but we have over 200 husbandry volunteers that help us with the feedings, uh, maintaining the exhibits, and uh, doing dive shows for educational purposes. So uh, it takes a lot of dedicated, passionate people to make sure that all of our animals are healthy. Well, for people listening to this show, they can come and volunteer. That's right. We have over 1,500 volunteers at the aquarium as total. And so there are lots of great opportunities here to come and help us either with interpretation or directly take caring for the animals. All right. So now here comes the connecting the dots part of the show. Okay. Right. I come here. I learn about the fish population. I learn about sustainability. I learn about declining populations in the ocean and increasing populations on land, if you will, meaning us. Uh, and I go to the supermarket an hour from now. What am I not going to buy? 
Well, you should definitely not buy seafood that uh, is in danger of, of being threatened. But how do I know? Oh, well, that's where you can consult our Seafood for the Future website to get more information about... Give me that, give me that website. Uh, www.aquariumofthepacific.org. And there, under um, at numerous tabs, you'll see the, the Seafood for the Future program. And you can learn more about sustainable choices. And our new Pacific Visions wing also focuses on sustainable choices, like Yellowtail Jack is a good option for marine aquaculture. And we're really highlighting the importance of that and how when people reduce energy consumptive resources like beef and pork, that may be, uh, they take a lot of energy to grow, where we have these great options for offshore protein sources through marine aquaculture. As opposed to just the traditional approach to just farmed fish, right? Exactly, exactly. Out in the open ocean, we have uh, clean ocean currents, and we can do this on a large scale that takes up just a very small space. Without endangering the fish or the environment. Exactly. And you can look at the numbers and, and extrapolate from that that you can actually increase that production without harming anything. That's right. But that took a while to do. But what's amazing to me is how many people aren't doing that. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's new. It's a technology we're learning as we go along. We've started with coastal marine aquaculture. But, you know, I always follow the money. If you can figure out how to, way to make it work technically and you look at the numbers, somebody's going to figure out we, we can actually make a profit doing this and it works. That's right. And that's what we're looking for for marine offshore aquaculture. I did pretty well today. I did my little sustainability test. I only got one thing wrong. All right. Want to know what it was? What? Alfalfa. Oh. Sorry. I didn't get the alfalfa question right. Mm, that's okay. We'll forgive you. You will, but I got yeah. everything else right. Great. When people come through here, because you've got you know, so many school groups coming through, and it's, it's an eye-opening experience for them, how do you connect the dots? Because, so, for example, at the supermarket, so much of the fish that I see is either mislabeled or it's misleading. And I can have every chart that's in my hand, and I'm still not a choice when I'm buying fish. Yeah, it's tough out there. And even I struggle at the grocery market with knowing what is best. But if you look for You the should open up a husbandry market. <laughs> and wait a minute now. <laughs> <laughs> There's the gift store here, and the, no, you can't. Right, no. but I mean, you do, you do struggle, don't you? Yeah, of course, and it, but it continues to improve, and as we get uh, further and further along with our labeling and our uh, better practices, I think it's going to eventually trickle down to the consumer to make it easier. I, I'll give you my big anger part, okay? And I just learned this. I mean, I'm a late, I'm late comer to this. I, I, I'm, I'm a pescatarian, so I'm not a meat eater. I'm good. Okay, I'm talking Me to too. a fellow You're pescatarian. Right, that's all right. right. I go to the market, and I see five different kinds of salmon, right? There's the, the wild, otherwise known as free-range salmon, right? And then I see salmon farmed from different locations, but it's colored differently. And these farms, I'm learning, are allowed to put inject color into the salmon to make you think you're, you know, it looks like wild salmon, but it really isn't. Yeah, there are, I mean, that's just one example of numerous examples of how we, you know, there, it, it's tricky out there. It's a, a tough market to navigate and know what best choices are. But again, just, um, you know, learning more from the Aquariums of the Pacific's website, um, reading labels, doing your own research at home, um, because the different labels can make a big difference. So, yeah, just I encourage everyone to educate themselves about it. And then, of course, there's the Chilean toothfish, 
Yeah. That was all talk about mislabeled. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, issues out there and it's hard to navigate the waters. Um, it's hard to know what the best choices are. But I'm a big sure. fan of following the money, and if people will vote with their wallets, things will change. Yeah, I think so too. And again, our uh, you know we have a, a department that's dedicated to sustainable seafood here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. So there's a lot of great information there. In terms of uh, you, you use the word collection, so I'll go back to the word the yes. ten thousand species collection. Mm -hmm. What's the most fascinating? member of that group for you oh i just i know you so love all your children i, I, I know, know but i can't have a favorite well you know I, what's the biggest surprise when people come here they're not expecting to see um i think for many people it's just that they can have an emotional connection to nature here at the aquarium of the pacific which is in the city of long beach and that in itself is an amazing experience because you know, when a lot of folks come here, they've never seen an octopus or an otter or a penguin before. And to just see it and then learn more about it is incredibly meaningful to them. But when they can go away with touching an animal or having a unique experience with an animal, um, that's when they hopefully remember it and go home to be good ocean stewards. My experience at the Atlanta Aquarium, which is an amazing place, um, is the albino whales. I mean, because, first of all, they're displayed in a tremendous opportunity for people to see them, right? right? And then what was amazing to me is I walked right up to one, looking through the glass, of course, and he was looking right back at me. We, had, we almost had a conversation. Oh, yeah. Beluga whales are amazing, amazing creatures. And it, it, you make that emotional connection and see even today that sticks with you. And that's our goal here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. And what's your emotional connection? My emotional connection is watching the uh, millions of guests that come through the Aquarium of the Pacific over my 22 years of history here. And well, you were here seeing, from the beginning. You were here from the beginning. Yes, and just seeing the impact that um, the incredible displays, our educational programs, and the animals themselves can have an impact on our guests. And again, making that emotional connection and getting them so thrilled. That's my emotional connection when I see them really connecting with ocean, the ocean animals and, and uh, getting super excited about it. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. just joining the show, then you haven't heard me say how much I've always been in, in love with Long Beach as a hidden gem of Southern California, often forgotten, often misunderstood, somewhat straddling between Orange County and L.A. County uh, in this netherland on the Pacific Ocean. However, I've known about Long Beach for a long time because my mom was a, was a Los Angeles native and used to hang out in Long Beach. So when I was growing up, I would be hearing stories about Long Beach way before I ever got a chance to see it. And uh, it's really had a renaissance, if you will, at the same time, uh, a strong movement to preserve the architecture that made it what it was in the first place. And joining me now 
the founder and editor of Long Beach Home and Living Magazine, and also the co-founder of Long Beach Architecture Week, Sal Flores. How are you, sir? Good, good. Good morning. Yeah. Hi. Um, you heard the introduction. Uh, you, you moved to the States when you were a kid. Correct. Right? I've How long have 12. you been in Long Beach? 16 years. All right. So they haven't found out yet. They haven't found out. No. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you here? Uh, to Long Beach, yeah. uh, Cal State. I graduated from um, uh, in Arcadia, uh, Arroyo High School. So I grew up there, uh, went to elementary school and high school, and then uh, came to Long Beach State in 2002, and I haven't left. Fell of in course, love with it. Of course, when you first came here, people told you you were nuts. It, even my dad. <laughs> and, and why? Uh, you know, his uh, when I said I want to go to Long Beach State, he's like, what do you mean? Snoop Dogg's from Long Beach. And I was like, why does it matter? And uh, <laughs> it was this, you know, idea. Of By the way, that's that not the branding message of, of Long Beach. No, <laughs> no. no but, you know, a lot Dogg. of people, a lot yeah. of people thought of it that way. And uh, they were, you know, worried about, you know, what people portrayed Long Beach as, you know. But before. Long Beach is always in danger, if you will, of falling apart. I mean, because yeah. people didn't, it wasn't a priority. Correct. And, and all of a sudden, if you take a look at Long Beach now, it's, it's, it's alive. It's, it's thriving. Alive. Uh, the, the, the art scene, the restaurant scene, the architecture yeah, scene. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's going through a renaissance, I think. You know, all this new development, buildings, there's a lot of people moving from, you know, um, uh, right now the, the west side. There's a lot of west side people moving to Long Beach, Orange County. And it's I always thought of Long Beach as an old place, as a people with, you know, sort of like it was Clint Eastwood in Grand Ford Torino was living in Long Beach, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the demographic has changed. It has. It's a lot younger. I think it's a lot of. There's a lot of artists. There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, millennials, uh, especially down, downtown Long Beach. It's 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 thriving. There's a lot of construction. There's a lot of people moving in. A lot of artists. A lot of new things are happening. Uh, and uh, I think Long Beach is it's getting younger. It's it's very diverse. It's a very progressive city. Uh, we have you know a very young mayor. Uh, who just happens to be part of the LGBT community, and it's just, you know, a great city. Well, that in itself is a huge change. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you take a look at, at, at the political influences in Long Beach over the years, it was never considered progressive. Now it is. Correct. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I think it's the diversity, and it's the, you know, people from all over that, uh, you know, build this community. And one thing about Long Beach is everybody here likes to help each other out. It, we're very friendly. We're a great city that we're like, you know, we're the little engine that could. Everybody's <laughs> always trying. There's branding. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and it's working. And I think uh, people are happy and people are discovering Long Beach. And, uh, I, you know, I think Long Beach has always been L.A.'s, I don't want to say, you know, ugly stepsister. But but that's you know, exactly how it was perceived. It was. And I think finally it's coming in its own. It's, it's, it's. Now, I'll, I'll give you the, the double-edged sword here. Along with development comes uh -huh. how do you preserve the architecture? Well, that's one of the points of our Architecture Week. We, you know, we are promoting preservation. We are working with Long Beach Heritage about, you know, uh, talking with the city and making sure, you know, buildings are being preserved. And, you know, uh, it tells a story. We want people to feel pride on their city, uh, uh, you know, what makes their city. And, uh, you know, that's part of why we did Long Beach Architecture Week. You know, my mother would tell me stories of the architecture of Long Beach. Not far from where we are right now, you have some of the original, I mean, original 19, 20, and 30 high-rise buildings mm -hmm. that are still there. Correct. That are just so amazing when you look at them. Yeah, yeah, you look at the, the Villa Rivera. It's exactly. right there on the ocean. It's, it's iconic, you know. When you think of Long Beach, you think of the Villa Rivera. You know, you have, now we have the, the Queen Mary's been there, you know. It's also it's been there 52 years. Yep. I'm, I'm feeling very old now, you realize this. <laughs> uh, it really is, at the bottom line, about storytelling. Correct. So when you do the Architecture Week, what stories are you telling? 
everything really. I mean, you know, architect, it's, it's about the people at the end of the day. You know, you have, uh, yeah, building can be beautiful, and but if there's no people using it, if there's no people looking at it, what's the point? And uh, I think, you know, with, uh, we're telling the story of how things happened. Uh, you know, we have the Thumbs Islands that people don't even realize what they are. They're just oil islands. You they're, know, they, they're somewhat badly camouflaged oil right. rigs. <laughs> I was I I took a helicopter and and I literally flew over the harbor. I was uh-huh. flying the helicopter too. It was great. Oh really? Uh, you, you, they let they let me do it. Can you believe it? <laughs> and I'm buzzing down around the oil rigs, and then that's when you really see what they are. Yeah, yeah. And and it's you know we have uh, one of the tours. You know was uh, we're taking people to the islands, or we took them, and uh, people had never been. You know people that lived here their entire lives and they don't know. Hey, look, what how many it is. people who live in New York City have never been to the Statue of Liberty? It's the same there thing. Yeah, same thing. Exactly. And uh, so, um, you know, we told the story, how it happened, why it happened, who built it, who was the architect behind, you know, making it look the way it looks, why they made it look that way, uh, you know, and the sound uh, effect on it, you know, how the uh, community around it, you know, needed to be protected from all the noise that it makes. So all that taken consideration, then they get to actually see what they do. Uh, so it's, it's actually pretty exciting. Now, of course, working with a city, you had a point not too long ago where you had a lot of buildings that were essentially abandoned. Correct, especially downtown. Yeah. What have we done in that department? You know, it's it's changing. I think the mayor, Mayor Garcia, has really, you know, brought in developers and brought in a lot of, you know, new uh, blood, I will say, you know, to Long Beach that have different ideas and different thoughts, and it's, it's working. Of course, you also have to change the code. Correct. Because if you don't change the code, you can't change anything. Correct. So, uh, you know, I, I, as far as, you know, the actual... Uh, projects and things that he's brought and what, what's going on, don't know much about it, but uh, you know, it's, you can see a difference in, in the city. You know, people are proud of it. You know, people you know, are proud to say they're from Long Beach. Before, you know, when around it's like you're from LA, well, we're part of it in Long Beach, but they never said Long Beach, and now it's, it's Long Beach. It's, it's where, I think, finally on the map. You're not afraid to say those two words? Nope, I never have. I, I have always been part of Long Beach, you know? It's, it's, it's always been home, you know, as soon as I got here, 2002, it was, it was one of those. I was like, I, this is it. And can I take an architecture tour? Absolutely. How do I do it? Uh, you, uh, you can get tickets, Long Beach Architecture Week. You have a, you have a website? We do. LB, uh, Long Beach or lbarchitectureweek.com. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar and far you know, When you think about Long Beach, California, you think about at least one iconic thing that's been around here since 1967, I believe. Um, and we've broadcast from it before. We mention it all the time uh, because it's still hanging in there and it's still telling stories. And that's, of course, the, the iconic Queen Mary, the original Queen Mary that sailed in here on its, after its last voyage, I believe, in 67, has been here in the harbor ever since. Um, we just broadcast um, last week from the Queen Mary 2 from Brooklyn as it was sailing from New York uh, to Southampton to celebrate Operation Overlord, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which is two days ago, by the way, June 6, 1944. Uh, and on board that ship, on the ship that we were on, the Queen Mary II, were 17 of the greatest generation still living World War II veterans, one of whom, Steve Mel- Melkinoff, uh, who I interviewed, 99 years old. And yes, he was on the dance floor, <laughs> amazing. And what great stories to tell some emotional stories to tell. And uh, joining me now, somebody who knows a lot about the RMS Queen Mary right here in Long Beach. He's a, profes- a preservationist, he's a lecturer, author of the Long Beach Art Deco and the RMS Queen Mary, 
John Thomas, nice to see you again, sir. Nice to see you, Peter. Welcome to Long Beach. And one of the things I'll, I'll remind everybody about is, uh, you know, you can, you, you can literally almost walk to the Queen Mary from, from the aquarium here. It's, it's, a, it's a good 30-minute walk, but you can see it. It's right here. Not lovely walk. Yeah, it is. But the little-known fact about the Queen Mary is it still holds the record for the most number of people ever carried on a ship. I believe it was more than 16,000. 16,690. Wow. Yeah. Talk about stacks. During the Grey Ghost era, yeah. Yeah, that's right, when it was painted in a different color. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting about that ship then, it went so fast, it didn't need a convoy. It basically could outrun the subs. That's correct. They couldn't, they couldn't catch it. They, it was running faster than the torpedoes just That's about. correct. That's correct. And Hit, Hitler had a bounty on the ship. Anybody in a, sub, in a sub that could sink the ship would get $250,000 at the dam. And they're still waiting. And they're still waiting. <laughs> Good luck with that. What is it that's still endearing about that ship here in Long Beach? Well, I think just like the city of Long Beach, it's rich with history. It's, uh, and it's still doing today what it was designed to do 80 years ago, which is bring people from all over the world to see its wonderful art and architecture of the ship, uh, live the stories, make memories, meet friends, and, and have an everlasting legacy experience. What I love about that ship, and I'm sure it's what you love about it too, and it's obviously part of your book. It's it's the the woodwork, yes, um, which you could never find on a ship today for all sorts of safety and fire and health reasons. But the the workmanship, the inlaid wood, the 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 artisanship. I mean, it's 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 just unbelievable to, to see that. Yes, the Queen Mary uh, under construction employed over th- three thousand artists and people covering the world looking for historic veneers. Some veneers that no longer exist, tree and plant life that no longer exist. So. It really is a museum, uh, actually floating. A lot of people think the Queen Mary's on some sort of a concrete saddle, but she actually floats and rises with the tide, uh, just like she did when she was in port in New York and Southampton. And one of the reasons why it still floats, let's call it what it is, is they made that ship with steel you couldn't use today. That's correct. And that, 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 that was thick steel. That's correct, up to two inches in the hull. Exactly. Yeah. They don't make them like that anymore. They don't need to make them like that anymore either, <laughs> yeah. Our modern ships are much more different. What's the biggest surprise for people coming to see that ship? I think um, the presence, how large the ship is, compared to what people think of the Titanic and other ships. It's just enormous. And the the access, you can literally walk down the historic hallways and corridors, walk along the decks. Um, It's vista to the city of Long Beach, the contrast of the old and the new and the merging. Um, It's really a spectacular opportunity. You know, we talk about the wood on that ship. The other thing about the wood in that ship, which you don't find on any ship today, is the width of the promenade deck and the wood on that deck. That's right, the teak. Yeah. Absolutely. The teak still remains. In fact, we were doing some recarpeting the other day and uncovered some teak that we're going to be able to harvest to use in replacement spots on sun deck. And it still uses a hotel? Absolutely. Hotel, meeting, convention. We have weddings, over, weddings. Weddings. We have over 200 weddings a year on the ship. Um, people love to be uh, married on the, on the Queen Mary bow. All right. Speaking of the bow, John, I want you to be honest. How many people want to do their Leonardo to shower Caprio routine um, and get on the bow and say they're the king of the world, the truth? Um, hundreds, <laughs> if not thousands a year. Uh, when I'm on the deck and I'm looking down, there's always someone, usually a gentleman, trying to impress his lady by seeing how far he can stretch his neck As out. original as standing in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa with your hand up to... to, to precisely. Exactly. Precisely. I mean, let's get original yeah. here. Well, you know, imagination allows us to do different things. So. And how many people then drop the jewel in, too? <laughs> Lots. Come on, really? Yes. And as a matter of fact, good, good point you bring up. You know, we have the prop box, the one remaining propeller on the ship, 
is encased so you can actually walk out and look down and see the prop in a pool. We just recently cleaned the prop out because there were so many ch coins, cell phones, sunglasses, and of course we're preparing that money now uh, to be donated to Ronald McDonald House. Here. We do about every two years, um, five, six hundred dollars. So people do strange things, throw all kinds of stuff in the water. Has, you know, they're not doing burials at sea anymore, but I'm sure people have asked to be buried off the, off the side of that ship. They have, and due to the nature of the ship, it's generally respectfully declined. But you can always have a reception aboard the ship for your, for your uh, fallen family member. When people come on that ship, other than the artwork, other than the, the, wood, the woodwork and the, and the workmanship, there are, I mean, how many times have we talked about this? You and I have talked about it. You know, it's haunted. Yes. Do you believe that? Well, I think, I think ghosts tend to go to very smart people, and I personally have not had an encounter with so a you, ghost. So you're stupid? Well, you said it. No, you said you, it. No, you just said <laughs> it. You're right. Um, they, go, they go to where intelligence allows them to go. Um, I've been on the ship many, many years, and I personally haven't had an encounter, but I know very many people who are very reputable. That who you believe? Encountered. Absolutely. And what have they encountered? They've encountered uh, a noise. They've encountered a touch on their shoulder. A brisk of wind, where in still air, uh, in their offices, um, voices, and we've had guests that actually report uh, seeing things as well as they're checking out the hotel room. Yeah, those are the guests who want a discount now. <laughs> Generally speaking, yeah. I saw a ghost. Can I have fifty percent? And I always the say we should charge them extra. You know? for, for the actual experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know why I charge them extra? Because they're only allowed two in the room. There was third. That's right. See, that's how you do it. No ups, no extras. <laughs> how long will that ship stay here? You know, the lifespan of the ship now is, has uh, been three times its normal lifespan. They were designed to last about 35 years. So she's going into her fourth era. Um, are the engines off the ship? All the engines are, uh, the engines are, the, the boiler rooms are off the ship. The engine room is still there and largely intact. The propellers are off except for the one propeller. You know, I, we just done a, a massive survey uh, three years ago called the Marine Survey. It's given us a list of about 25 priority projects. That have to be done. Yeah, and we're looking at probably 30 years uh, timed out for the last project being a priority. It's the funding. You know, it's a city asset, and so it's really a, a, a complex a tripod effect. You have the uh, leaseholder which sure. in this case is Urban Commons, the city, and the operators. So funding is a big deal. Sure, because the hotel, they basically are licensed by the city to operate the That's hotel. Correct. That's correct. So you've got you to find the money now. Yeah, and, and I think like every asset, historic asset in, in the nation, I mean, uh, funding historic preservation, restoration, whether you're a property owner and, and it's your own little craftsman bungalow, or you're the city of Long Beach and you're Queen Mary, it's the same. I say preservation is like peeling an onion. The more you get into it, the more you want to cry. <laughs> and, it, and it prolongs I've had the, relationships like that well yeah. so have I yeah. not anymore um, but the more you get into the project the more cost overruns there are and, that, and extends the delay so, um, so it's a challenge it's a challenge but it's a, no, it's a worthy challenge for the citizens of Long Beach to support the Queen Mary you've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
And you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.